0: It's a, so there's a resource restriction there. We thought this was a great place to make innovation. And now with some of these other tools, we also can do things that are, you know, with the internet, we can reach uh, pathologists in groups to underrepresented populations, to places where we have to go to find samples, to, to different things that allow us to essentially become more efficient in the handling and processing these, these tissues.
1: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast, I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Tissue specimens continue to have an increasing role in medical research, especially in areas such as drug development and companion diagnostics. And this requires biobanks that collect the specimens and make them available for researchers. My guests today are John Wetzel and Leif Honda from Trimedis Life Sciences. Throughout this conversation, you're going to hear how they're using AI and Lean Six Sigma to increase the efficiency of biobanking and improve patient care. All right, here are John Wetzel and Leif Honda. So we're, we're going to be talking mostly about your company, Trimetis. Uh, but first, I want to kind of get a little bit of a background on each of you. So we're going to start with you, Leif, and we're going to, we're going to go back to uh, college years <laughs> now, you earned uh, degrees in biology and economics. And I was thinking about this. That seems like kind of an unusual combination. Uh, can can you tell me about this? Like, how did you come up with this combination? And I uh, kind of want to get into like what you intended to do with it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having us. And uh, it's nice to meet you. So my initial uh, foray into college was pre-medicine, right? Medicine, I wanted to be a doctor, and so okay. I started in that that core line of courses and uh as a standard course would t- the course pathway would take it, you, you go to biology and chemistry, or my college being a liberal arts college, required that you take some survey courses. And I took a microeconomics course and had a great professor, Dr. Gregor, there that really inspired me and 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 I immediately connected with the, the subject matter.
2: And where, you know, the pre-medical courses were super competitive and required a lot of study, you know, the economics
0: came very easy to me. I kind of understood the concepts and really could, uh, not saying that I wanted to do what was easy, but I, I understood it very easily. And I was able, I was hungry for that type of information. Then after I, you know, had my second economics course, uh, after looking into that and I had took an accounting course, I realized that, you know, these two areas are completely operating in silos. And even by the jargon and the way they talk about each other, you know, it kind of piqued my interest. I started writing writing papers and doing projects that, you know, started to show like there's some economic value here in this biology that you have to recognize and kind of acknowledge. And that's not it's not, you know, unto itself. Each one is not to itself and and, and so at the time, you know, things that were emerging that a pre-medical person would have to think about are HMOs and the way insurance was changing. And I, I, I had some uh, friends of the family, that both doctors, My one of my best friends' parents, both doctors. And they said, you know, the future for you guys, we we're both going pre-med, uh, is HMOs. And you need to think about the business part of this because you're no longer a, uh, you know, a doctor that hold, has the shingle up and, you know, sees a group of patients and has a nice life. You're a part of the business now. So I really started thinking about that as I, you know, software, you know, the years went on. And I realized that this, this is a a deeper problem that we need to think about. And initially I was asked to be a part of a think tank and I was, you know, when I graduated and part of things that really thought about the bioeconomics of things. And today we're seeing, you know, much more integration. We're seeing, uh, you know, in real world applications, you know, the subspecialization of doctors and way the
2: insurances are going sustainability, these things are all kind of an emergence of those things that I was studying. And I, I just found, uh, I was passionate
0: about it and I wanted to pursue it.
1: Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense now that I think about it. I mean, when you talk about medicine, it is very much connected to economics and, uh, you know, f- financial aspects, especially these days, you, you said you were pre-med, like what kind of, what, what turned you away from, from that?
0: Um, To be honest with you, I, I had an eye injury as a kid, and I wanted to be a surgeon. And you know, I, I used to do these internships over the summer with surgeons, and you know, some of them candidly said, you know, your problem is not going to be your ability; your problem is going to be your eyes. And really, it came down to insurance, and that kind of reinforced this whole problem—you know, this whole balance and problem that comes up with you know being a business—is if I'm a good surgeon, does it matter? You know, and and so. That really set the tone for me and I try to understand, you know, how am I gonna be able to do this? And so I I'm I was never really turned off by pre-medicine. I still completed all the pre-medical courses, you know, took the MCATS, did all those things. But, you know, I when I when I got out, I was like, do I want to be a researcher? Do I wanna you know there's such a variety of doctor, you know, doctors out there. Do I wanna be a, a GP, you know, that type of thing. But I was I was really interested in the cutting edge and that required me to put some thought And So I took a pause then and at that point is when you know, people started approaching me about the think tank around bioeconomics and some other things and, and I said, you know, maybe this isn't where I want to go after all. Uh, but I'm still passionate about medicine. I I, I enjoy it and we, we touch it in so many ways with our with our biospecimens and with the pathologists we work with, with the different oncologists we work with. And so we're we're actively involved in, in that universe and and um, we hope we're making a greater impact as you'll see later in the podcast, you know, things that we do hopefully make a bigger impact on the practice of medicine and the delivery of medicine and ultimately uh, patient care.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. I understand. John, let's turn to you now. Uh, First of all, tell me about the Lyman Briggs college at Michigan state. What what was this program like?
3: Um, So first let's talk about Michigan state. So for those of you that don't know, Michigan state is like 5,000 acres. It's a massive campus with about 50,000 students. And to take science there would be taking your science class with about 30, with about 3,000 other undergrads. So what I loved about Lyman Bridge, which is specifically geared toward the sciences, a lot of people take it from pre-med, um, but it is a core science group. It's like a college within a college. There's about six or 700 students that, uh, that are uh, enrolled into the Lyman Bridge program. And it's basically math. It's, yeah, you've got your physics, you've got your uh, biology, your chemistry, but it also touches on uh, in, uh in humanities in research uh in science it's very science focused so from a core aspect it's kind of like a small group of really hardcore nerds that love science in a way and, uh, we're all packed <laughs> okay. in, and we're all packed in one dorm which is great in a way there's we're all located in one single dorm uh for our first year basically uh so we get to know each other so my college friends i still keep in touch with because my math class there was 100 students as opposed to literally 2,000 uh, in the university setting. So it makes it a very small group and really touches on the science. And, you know, I, I really cherish my time as a Briggsy and still keep in touch with all my friends there.
1: Okay, I see. Yeah, like I took a, you know, I, I majored in biology in college. And it was a, a one of those things where it was like those big halls, uh, you know, where, where there, like you said, there were thousands of students and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So I can see how that's smaller size would be definitely beneficial okay now now another aspect of your kind of education you studied lean business processes and six sigma so tell tell me about that why did you why did you like what was that where did that interest come from
3: uh well i kind of fell backwards into it to be
1: honest with you so
3: that actually occurred later on in my career uh actually was right after i had helped develop my first biobank uh to be honest with you and we developed it up and everything. And there was a change in leadership and the new CEO brought in somebody who had done Lean Six Sigma and said, hey, you know, I think we can apply it here. So I learned about Lean Six Sigma at that point And I fell in love with it because when you look through, we refer to it as lean eyes, but when you see something, you get it. and you see something from a Lean Six Sigma perspective, the whole world changes for you. So I wound up first learning about Lean Six Sigma. Then I turned around to my entire laboratory and I apologized to them. I told them that I built it entirely wrong and that we were gonna fix it. And you know, back then we had a processing time and and this is a bio-banking. So this is samples coming in with consent, clinical data, going through a QC process and then being made in available inventory. And then an end-to-end process time back then when I originally did it was 30 days, which I thought was so impressive. Well, over the course of two years of a lot of N6 Sigma tools being used, we took that 30 days down to two and a half days uh, with the same number of people we didn't have any new equipment on. All we did is we streamlined what we were doing and got rid of all the waste out of the system. And uh actually when I left that group, we were down to about two and a half days uh for processing time. Uh it was it was a joy, to be honest with you, to see the transition, to see everybody just enjoying the day more, uh knowing what they had to work on, what they didn't have to work on. We got rid of all of that waste of time and uh it was one of the best transitions I think I ever did for a company. So it's lean six sigma to me is is how you improve just about anything that you can possibly do. Uh, it can be applied anywhere. Um, if you apply it at your home, you have to have your wife's permission. Just give me a, a warning on that. <laughs> so. it's, it's good
1: to know.
2: Okay. <laughs> this is true. <laughs>
1: um, all right. Now, John, I know you, do, you studied the, the Lean Six Sigma. And that was mm-hmm. at a University of Michigan. Yes. Right? Okay. Now, and Lyman Briggs was at Michigan State. So yes. <laughs> it's college football season. <laughs> who do you who do you cheer for? Because I know that's a big rivalry.
3: It, it's a tough one. If I live on a state, I root for both of them. Uh, if I live in state, I have to pick Michigan State. I just have to. It's it's a required. It's a it's a requirement. Unless you're surrounded by U of M students, and then you silently root for Michigan State, and you go go blue. So uh, you know.
1: <laughs> okay. got it. All right. And now it seems like just just kind of getting a little bit of your background. Each of you, you both had kind of this entrepreneurial aspects to your uh, personalities. And I'm curious, where do you think that came from? Like, what was the inspiration for that?
0: So for me, uh, you know, I, I've always been an entrepreneur. Uh, if, if you look back at my childhood, I was always selling lemonade and club candy bars and hoagies and doing things And I really had a good opportunity um, in high school. They had a program called junior achievement, which would be like with the local uh, businesses and manufacturing businesses, uh, warehouser and, and, and Traco and all these places that did different things. And we would have to come up with our own products and get them in the market and stuff like that. So I, I've always enjoyed that uh, type of thing. And honestly, I believe entrepreneurs are born, not made. You know, I think there's a certain kind of crazy that you have to be to be an entrepreneur. Um, but uh, the truth be told, my father's an entrepreneur. Uh, both my grandfathers, uh, my Japanese grandfather, who was a parts manufacturer for boats, invented the globe plug. And then my, Grandfather from Norway uh, or, or in the United States, Norwegian, and um, he uh, helped develop the first Ar- Artic snowmobile and some of that stuff. So, and he was had his own plumbing and heating business and all that type of th- those types of things. So, it's kind of ingrained in the in the bloodline here. And um, and so, you know, I've always found joy in it and and excitement around the challenge of doing it. Um, I wouldn't wish it for my kids necessarily, but but it's it's there. So,
1: okay, I see. And and uh, what about you, John?
3: Um, I've always been an entrepreneur. Also, it's kind of like it's kind of like an itch to want to do something different all the time. Uh, For me, it was always about you know I had a lawn service also when I was a kid, and I was always selling one thing or another. Uh, But it was always about fixing something. You know, my dad. uh, I come from uh, Detroit, obviously, with the Michigan side of it, and you know all my cousins and everybody are tool and diamond or, or auto plant workers. My dad was a Worked at the auto plant you was skilled trade in a pipe fit, which means always fixing something or redesigning something or moving something around. So it's that it's that desire to change things or repair things or make something more efficient or just fixing things uh, that I think is part of the entrepreneurial spirit. It's, I, I wouldn't say tough, but to maintain something. Like I know I have a lot of friends of mine that they just, that they work at companies and, and uh, they do the same thing day in and day out. And that's all for them and they love it. Uh, but it's not, it's not me. So usually I've always been someone who, you know, I get a new department that they ask me to go ahead and and lean up or or go ahead and improve or, you know, start something new, a new business, something along those lines. So the itch has always been there. I think it's it's been there as long as I can remember. You know, I I think a a normal job just isn't for me in a way. I don't mean that as a bad thing. Some people love doing things day in, day out the same way. I, I wish them well for it. It's just not ingrained in me. Like, like, like Lave said, I think that's the entrepreneurial side. It's that itch.
1: Okay. Okay. That that makes sense. All right. Then, then let's kind of get into the biotech and biobanking because both of you have a pretty long history in, at, at, at least in biobanking. And I'm curious kind of how that started.
3: So when I, I was a researcher, you know, I used to, I did prostate cancer research back in the day. And I was at the University of Michigan, actually. Yeah. A Michigan State grad working at U of M. And, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was doing work back then, and uh, they had a large biobank, a prostate biobank at the time. So it was my first interest in a, in a biobank on that side of it, uh, and learning more about the samples that we would be using for, and, and actually speaking with the pathologist there on how, you know, back in the day, you know, this was the mid-90s as I date myself, but, you know, they'd give us the samples, they'd circle in the back of that glass slide, uh, and then I was sitting there with a razor blade scraping off the tissue for where the pathologist said the tumor was, and things along those lines. So I was a user back then. And then after that transition, I later on went and did uh, uh, gene chips at a company out in Maryland. So gene chip epimetrics had just started. They were the only person in mass uh, gene chips at the time. So I started there and I was a, once again a sample user working closely with the biobanks, finding quality samples uh, that I could go ahead and put through all the epimetrics gene chips because we were building a large database of gene expression information. And just after that, though, after that job, you know, I got approached by a company that wanted to build a biobank. And that was really the big thing in 2001 was to build a biobank because and it, it spoke to me because I remember being a user and I could not find samples that were, that were, you know, QC well enough. I remember spending, I don't know, it had to have been $8,000 on, on one sample that was supposed to be a liver and what being a lung sample or you're scraping the wrong area uh, of the tissue and it's not the tumor area so high quality biospecimens, it's i think it's the skill of the biotech industry you know it's a starting material so that was really in 2001 where i really took on the full biobanking aspect of it and realized that, uh, that there was so much research out there that the people don't even know that the research they're working hard on, on doing isn't going to go anywhere because the samples that they thought were of good quality really weren't Uh, And that spoke to me more than anything else is that people were wasting their time on their research and they didn't even know it. I mean, they were getting results, don't get me wrong, but they were skewed because they trusted samples that probably were not QC well enough. And that was in that was in 2001. I've been in the biobanking industry now for 21 years, I guess, trying to improve as much as I can where I can.
1: All right. What about, what about you, Lace? Yeah. So I I have a similar
0: story, you know, necessity is the mother of, of invention and, you know, I was uh, fortunate enough to get involved with a group of investors that had bought a company in Germany that was doing peptidomics, which is a subgroup of proteomics. And this, this, in, this investment had already had, I don't know, 40 million euros put into it. Pretty robust investment. And, you know, my, uh, my boss had gotten into it and said, you know, we, we want to try to make something of this that's, you know, in service, a greater population than just the research community so he sent me in there and 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 I started to look around and you know they had all these great uh, a great plant platform technologically super sophisticated um, they identified uh, you know new diagnostics biomarkers that would you know evaluate patients earlier disease earlier could really tell you about the biology that that, that was uh, going on in the pathway that it was taking and you know they had identified new therapeutic targets but they had you know probably uh, 50 different targets that they were going after you know that they had to do and then i kind of did a, a survey of the company and these projects to try to see what had the most value that we could get behind them could invest in and it dawned on me after a little while that these all failed because they didn't have enough samples you know they they had these great little subsets and and you know the technology was so good that it could identify something out of these little subsets but at the same time, you know, if you don't have the samples, you really can't say you've proven anything. You know, there's no statistical power yet. So as part of this, you know, my job was to try to find these, you know, what to invest in and how to invest and, and where to put the money and try to get some you know, value and something into the market. And so that brought me down the rabbit hole of like, okay, so to prove this, you need to prove that. To have this many samples, you need to go to this place. And, you know, they were working... And it was very clear that they were not working with a biobank. They didn't know consent. They didn't know where the samples were coming from. They didn't know the quality of the sample as it entered the tube. They couldn't backtrack it to the the pathology report and where, you know, what the diagnosis was. And there were just all sorts of things. And you started unpacking all those and you realize, okay, so this is a really big problem, which is what John's saying is essentially, if you don't have the statistical power, you don't have the samples, you really can't go anywhere. And these are, brilliant PhDs and MDs and engineers that invented this technology, but it never made it really to the light of day because it never got past its uh, validity check. And so, you know, I tried to develop those along to get them into the hands of, of you know, diagnostic companies and pharma companies. And we did start to power, then we started to show results, but it was it was obvious at the time that there were not a lot of good sources. And so this is, uh, I guess, 2006 um, you know, we knew of, we knew of Astrand, but we were operating in Germany. Uh, there, was a, there was a bunch of things that that you know kept us from scaling those programs. And eventually, my investor got out, and I got out with him. But you know, that's when it, it dawned on me that we are not doing something right because if we really want these innovations to get to market, it's not just a great idea or luck. It takes it takes the access to the specimens to prove without a doubt that these things are actionable, that this target can be. You know, a therapeutic can target this this uh, tissue type or uh, repeatedly a diagnostic and see over and over that morphology or pathology that says, you know, this is this disease very specifically. So that's that's how I got into it. And I actually met John. I was brought on as consultant for biomarkers uh, to Asteran because of my biomarker experience in proteomics and peptidomics. And uh, I met him on his last day of <laughs> employment, actually. Um <laughs> And we really hit it off. And I was like, this guy really knows what he's doing. Like it's after going down this pathway of trying to find these samples. I'm like, this is, this guy's the most knowledgeable person I've talked to. And I've talked to the NCI. I've talked to all these other companies about how they access their samples. So uh,
2: we were kindred spirits in that
0: way. And ever since we've been saying like, how do we make this better? You know, how do we make uh, people get the power they need, get the samples they need. And, you know, it's not all biobanking. It's some of it's just in time and, there's all sorts of things that we've done to, um, you know, improve upon access to specimens.
1: Okay, and when when was this that the two of you met? Like like what year?
0: Two thousand seven, right? Well, John, when were you? When was it your was last 2008. day? Two thousand eight. Yeah, two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Just, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> and, and then, so then, how was it that the two of you started working together?
0: I kind of kept the communications open. I was with Astran as a consultant, and I saw what they did, and I felt like. This is a business. It's a good, okay business, but there's there's something not ideal. Which is, you know, you can biobank all you want, but if you don't collect the right specimen and you don't have an idea where that specimen is going to be applied downstream, you really are collecting in a vacuum. And 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 John, to use a word John would probably say is is you're hoarding. You know, you're hoarding for that day that maybe someone might like this product. You know, to use this, and but that you know, if our objective is to power these studies, you know, the researchers in pharma and diagnostics, you don't want to hope for that day. You want to kind of target for that day and say, this is what we need to get the job done. Because again, there's a lot of great science out there that never makes it it the market. There's a lot of therapies that get killed essentially that that could be successful, but the samples are just unobtainable because there wasn't enough thought and, and time put around it. So and that's why we started to say we should probably be doing something better, and I felt, you know, just in time, targeted programs uh, was a better way to make those successful. We kind of were kindred
3: spirits in that regard you know, in the in sample acquisition side of it. You know, I always joke about <laughs> biobanks. I was a biobanker, uh, but I joke about biobanks in some regards. When you know, I've gone to these conventions, the biobanking convention, ISPR, and some of the other ones, and you're in some of the groups you're sitting at tables, and people are, are talking about their biobanks, and they're like, "Oh, I have." I have like 3 million samples in my biobank. And I'm thinking, you have 3 million samples nobody wants? That's gotta kind of be rough. You know, uh, they look at it as a badge of honor. And I look at it as, you should have no samples because you should be, hopefully, if you collected everything that somebody wanted from a lean perspective, it, you would then be able to place 100% of your samples out there. So it, to me, it looks like it's more of a targeted type of thing that, that biobankers really need to target what the researchers want and they work in, in silos in some way. Ah, uh, but the biobankers are really focused on banking samples. They weren't as focused on getting samples out there to end users or finding out what end users really need, which is what a biobank needs to start with. So to me, the bigger the biobank isn't necessarily a, uh, a a a gold star. It's a warning sign uh, in some ways. That's just my personal opinion on it.
0: yeah, I just just to add to that, I, I don't want to dog out biobankers because they do pro- they do provide a very important service to yes. researchers. but, to that end, if you think about, like John's saying, the economics of this thing is, you know, as an economics business person, you want to say, I want to turn over my inventory so many times a year. You know, some of these biobanks do never turn over their inventory. You know, I want to use 5% of my resources at least, you know, a place that much. You know, it really needs to be 55%, 60%. Uh, the margins need to be 60, 70% for, for it to be a tangible business. And so a lot of these things, you know, are missed on biobank banking because they just they want to just have them for that moment but there, it, it really isn't a business business and so you know our approach was very different in that way um it's not that we don't use biobankers and we don't we think there's a place for those but you know it's an inventory it's a location as opposed to being a library it's a temporary place where we're holding those samples for someone else to use them right so so that's how we changed the approach to biobank. And I think you'll see in the, the products that we're developing now are very much thoughtful about that, that incorporate John's lean six sigma, the economics of biology and make sure that people, that these are really high value, uh, you know, high target, high, high production, uh, biospecimens that we're providing to people.
1: Okay, yeah, I see. It sounds like, you know, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, like you're kind of combining the skills that both of you bring to this uh, to what Trimetis Life Sciences is doing. So let's get into Trimetis now. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about, like, what is, for each of you, like, what is your role uh, with Trimetis? And, and, John, let's start with you.
3: Sure. I'm a chief operating officer at COO. Uh, so for me, it's about onboarding new sites. It's making certain that all the paperwork's done, the quality controls aspects are there. I help with uh, on the software development side, so my team takes care of uh, making certain that it's it's working and operational uh, to for the delivery aspect of it. Uh, for us, it's really about uh, syncing up the end users' requirements with the the supply side, I guess, and certainly <coughs> getting the right samples. Uh, I always use the analogy of a of a restaurant. Uh, a chef can only be as good as the materials or the, or the ingredients that they have. So that quality has to be there because you can't expect a chef to make uh, a five-star or five uh, five star meal uh, if they don't have high-quality ingredients from the get-go. So for us, it, it's really about that on the operation side. So it's making certain that uh, soup nuts end-to-end, everything gets there for the researchers that they need. And we want them to have, I guess, an enjoyable experience because bio-specimens can be rough sometimes and not getting what you ask for. And that's why we constantly are streamlining that aspect of it uh, to make it easier for them to select the samples that they need and pointing them in the right direction. Because the researchers out there are studying something specific. They're studying colon cancer, breast cancer, you know, head and neck, whatever it is. And on the other side, the supply is coming from a human at a, at a hospital. So there's patient care. And it's syncing up the two of them. Now, the researchers don't necessarily speak patient care, and the people at the hospital don't necessarily speak researcher. We joke sometimes it's odd that, you know, the researchers sometimes forget it actually comes from a person. In a way, they ask for things that are are quite impossible. Like they want five units of whole blood from a stage four cancer patient. And it's like, no, (laughs) I don't know what you're doing with it, but you're not going to get it. Uh, And and a lot of that comes from, quite honestly, from uh, the researcher will tell somebody in procurement, who will double the amount, will tell somebody in in purchasing that will double the amount. And, and we wind this, this, this aspect of they're trying to, to increase in economies of scale, which makes no sense. So we constantly want to drive to get to that researcher and find out exactly what their needs are and then convey that over on the clinical side and, and train them to tell them what's actually possible. What can you actually get from a patient? Whether it's a stage four cancer, maybe they don't resect that, that cancer, even though the researcher wants to study it, they can't get the, they can't actually get the sample. So it's a lot of education on our side.
1: Okay, it's, it, it sounds like, like you're sort of a, the translator between the two the two parties a little bit. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. All right, uh, Aleph, how, how about you?
0: Yeah, John, John's the translator, and then then some might say, but uh, you know, we work in very complementary ways, and uh, we have, I should mention Phil Sestar, our CEO, who, who we didn't want to be talking on this podcast, but is is extremely valuable to us. But we have a we have a special relationship the three of us, and what I do is I'm the chief innovation officer. And, and John and I are constantly talking about for years, we've been talking about how do we make this better? You know, how do we improve these things? And that you can argue that's entrepreneurial or that's six sigma or what have you, you know, we're always trying to make things better and uh, trying to find solutions for things. So what I do is I typically, you know, come up with ideas and bounce them off at John and say, in the real world, John, what does this look like? You know? And then because of my experience and investments and, 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 and research, you know, I then go out to do the due diligence around them. Is this a plausible business model? Is there something that's of value here? Will it will it translate? Is it is there a market for it? Is there multiple markets for it? What inventions are out there? Are there any patents that are already out there on these types of things? And ultimately, you know, bring it to market and, and working with the marketing team and sales team and saying this this is what we're doing, this is how we educate people and you know, how they embrace these new technologies in, in, in our space. And so We've always worked great together and, 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 you know, we would be in hotel rooms and conferences saying, you know, this is wrong. This is broken. Like we should really figure out how to fix it. And one of those examples is, you know, the whole process of how, you know, how we, uh, how samples are acquired today. You know, you can acquire a sample, a pathologist will look at it. And then uh, if they don't look at it for research, they may, they we may get a little spreadsheet that says it's this, this is the indication. Cancer of this type and this stage, and it's really, you know, five or six data points. And then they send it to us, and then we get our pathologist to look at it. And our pathologist says, okay, I confirm what that pathologist said, but I now I'm adding this, you know, research value to it so that the researcher then can use it for the research. We send that material onto the researcher, and before they get it, They ask their pathologists, like, (laughs) what should we do? So we're looking at, you know, and they reanalyze that same sample. So now that sample has been analyzed three times by three different pathologists in, in, you know, different uh, circumstances, the block has been cut three times, and now you're trying to say, uh, is it usable or not? And those are the types of things that we identified as a group and then said, you know, and I, you know, had a good chat with John and said, you know, we can fix all these things. Now, these are these are little businesses within our business that we can address, um, and so that's what the innovation offers. That officer does: is really everything from taking something where I have an idea, John has an idea, and then validating it, doing the diligence on it, and then trying to get it to market.
1: Okay, I like this. It sounds like you're you're constantly trying to improve the process. Yeah. You know, a lot of these things are you know, this is the way we've always done it. And so we're just going to keep doing it that way. And it sounds like that's not what you guys are about at all.
0: You are spot on. That is exactly what it is. This is That's exactly how it is. Um, We'll give you some examples later, but I think, you know, it's, it's remarkable when you go back and you say, why do we do this? And everyone says that is exactly just how we do it. Why we've always done it that way. So.
1: This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guests, Leif Honda and John Wetzel. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a free virtual event that's coming up on November 4th, hosted by Dr. Alexandra Zuroff, and this is called Bridging the Gap Between Pathology and Computer Science. Dr. Zuroff is the host of the Digital Pathology podcast, and she also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog. And in fact, she was also a guest on this show, episode 53. This event will feature many prominent speakers in the field of computational pathology. And did I mention it's free? For more information, you can check out the link in the show notes or just head over to the Digital Pathology Place blog. And I will see you there on November 4th. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. Labvine is free to sign up and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now, here's the rest of my conversation with Leif Honda and John Wetzel from Trimetis Life Sciences on the People of Pathology podcast. All right, I want to get into a uh, kind of some specific things that uh, Trimetis offers. Now, the first one is called TriMedis Computer Assisted Pathology, or TCAP, is the acronym for that. Uh, can you tell me about this system? How was this developed?
0: Yeah, so this is this is looking at a problem. You know, as a salesperson, I was very frustrated where I would place samples and then someone would say, "Yeah, it doesn't have enough tumor uh, nuclei, or it doesn't have a tumor percentage, or tumor nuclei, or there's too much necrosis in this sample." And you know, again, we we vetted this three times before, or two times before they got it. You know, and you know, that was a problem. And then we we went in to meet some clients and we started discussing like, so how do you come how do you figure this out? Like how do you how are you estimating these values? And what we realized it is a best guess, and that there is no science around it. There is no quantitative or qualitative information that goes along with it. It's strictly a guesstimate. And so uh TCAP came out of that is we don't want to guess anymore. We want to have one true data data set on this tissue for tumor purity and nuclei count. And we want to be able to show that to the purchaser of the material
2: before they buy it so they can have a visual inspection and so that they can see
0: this tissue before it ever leaves its original location. You know, if you're trying to do the logistics of shipping a sample around the world, it's not easy. I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into that. And sometimes you have to go to other place in the world because the standard of care is different. So, you know, it, it's absolutely necessary to figure out how to do this, get the information in front of them quicker. And that's where TCAP really started is how do we get them the information up front and what information is valuable so that there's no question about is that material going to work for their purposes, for their assay or for their test. So I'll, I'll start with that. And, um, you know, what, what I will say is that we did, um, you know, I when we agreed that we would pursue this area, I went out and did diligence on AI companies that were doing digital scanning, doing digital pathology, pathology engines, which were doing machine learning, which were doing true AI, which were web enabled. So I did, you know, started doing a business case around. I think we can do this, and you know, is it a plot? Is it is it something that can be real? You know, um, can it be patented? That type of thing. So um, that's where TCAP came from. And again, it's out of necessity that we do this. We're moving the standard now with
3: what we've done. We don't
0: fault pathologists. You know, pathologists.
3: Every pathologist I know is a human, and humans have a problem with with spatial relations in a way uh, to do that estimate for that percent tumor. It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, uh, I, I always usually, when I have to talk to the investors or yeah. anybody in my family, actually, because I don't have any scientists in my family. I use the analogy of you know we're asking. Uh, Somebody to take a look at, you know, an aerial picture of Times Square on New Year's Day. You know, there's a quarter million people there, and you're asking somebody to take a look at that and then have a high-powered magnifying glass and say count the number of people with hats on. You know, it's 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 impossible to do. You know, on a piece of tissue, you're looking at a quarter million cells. Maybe not a biopsy, but on a resection, and to ask a pathologist to do that is uh, with accuracy, with extreme accuracy, is lunacy. To be quite honest with you, and I, I. and that's what we refer to as a guess, because nobody's going to get that thing very accurate. And a lot of uh, uh, cutoffs for criteria are, I need 20% tumor. Well, pathologists, because we've done that, having done this for 20 years, you know, uh, with late, pathologists will range from their error anywhere from 5% all the way up to 30% for a single pathologist. And, and if you get the same sample, because I've done this before, to the same pathologist maybe two months later, they'll come up with a different number sometimes. Um, so, it's not necessarily an accuracy thing. We don't fault them for it. But it, the problem is, is, it didn't make sense to, as to this is a cut-off criteria for people to assays. So, we shouldn't be relying on the pathologists for it because, quite honestly, they're just not great at it. They try their best. I don't fault them for it. But in a matter of five minutes, you're asking them to make an assessment on a quarter million cells and make a judgment call as to what the percent tumor was. So there had to be a lean way to do this, a more simple way. This is where Leif came in, especially to come up with this, uh, find the technology to do this uh, from the uh, machine learning perspective. What better things to count? It's not doing diagnosis. It's not deciding that it's breast-invasive ductal carcinoma compared to lobular. It's just counting cells and giving us percentages. And it's the best use of the AI, especially it's a bottleneck, because we're asking pathologists to do thousands of these uh, because it's required for every NGS assay. And then on top of it, we're asking to do it quickly, uh, which is difficult, uh, and to do it nonstop. Uh, I mean, all the pathologists that we've showed this to and talked with, you know, in short, they didn't do 16 years worth of higher education to, to, to count cells. It's not the high point of their day. They love this thing, uh, to be quite honest with you, uh, because it's accurate. They don't have to do it. It's not a job they enjoy. It's a job they get paid for and it's an absolute necessity. Um, You don't have to be a pathologist to do cells. Obviously, if you're a PA or somebody who does this all the time, you can be trained up to do it, but it's a job that nobody wants to do, and that made it a perfect use of this
0: type of technology. Yeah, I think you make a good point, John. You know, there are so few pathologists. I mean, they do go through 12 to 16 years of schooling, but there are just numbers-wise, there are so few pathologists worldwide, and we're using those same right. pathologists for this. You know, uh, I live outside of Boston, you, you know, there's tons of biotechs that are You know, need to check samples like they don't have they can't afford and they can't uh, hire a pathologist to do this. We know certain institutions that have had uh, studies in waiting for two to three years because the pathology uh, staff is overwhelmed with their clinical care that uh, so much so that they can't even get to these things. So, you know, it's one of those things, not only they like to offload it, but they still get to make the decision. They can still visually inspect and say, do I agree with this? with this information or not, but ultimately it takes a lot of workload off and it starts to chip away at this very manual process that happens in a, in a pathology lab, which is lots of handling of slides, lot, you know, looking at their uh, visible light microscopes and, um, things that, you know, we have been doing for over a hundred years, you know, maybe longer, um, that haven't changed. You know, it, 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 it's it's a so there's a resource restriction there, we thought this was a great place to make innovation. And now, with some of these other tools, we also can do things that are, you know, with the internet, we can reach uh, pathologists in groups to underrepresented populations, to places where we have to go to find samples, to to different things that allow us to essentially become more efficient in the handling and processing these these tissues.
1: Okay, I think what you just said there at the end is the most important part. It does make it, it seems like this will make it everything more efficient, for like the entire process, uh, using the AI to count, like you're, you're counting number of tumor cells, and I think also percentage of necrosis, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, that's correct. That's correct. And yeah, you know, if you put the computer up time-wise, you know, we the way we develop this system is, it could take, for a pathologist to do a resection that we do, you know, in, in five to five to 10 minutes uh, at most right now, um, you know, would take them days, maybe weeks to do the same kind of counting. And it would and like John said, it would be, it would be a trying effort to do that for one sample, you know? And so the way we developed this system is that it's on Amazon web services and it can scale. And so we can, every time we spin up a new uh, GPU or have overflow and volume, you know, it spins up more, more uh, graphical processing units, more, uh, computer processing units it cascades and then you have a staff of you know instead of have a staff of one pathologist you have a staff of 40 pathologists working simultaneously and so it's very robust and, and, and very scalable and we did that intentionally but um you know I, i've had studies that you know uh, when we send the samples that we're waiting 60 to 90 to 120 days just for them to get back to us to tell us if there's enough tumor nuclei in the sample From a business perspective, on the flip side is it's not really smart to have your cash flow, you know, blocked up for 120 days um, because they haven't checked it. Uh, That was the other side of the coin that was an impetus for us is how do we get this so that they transact very quickly and say, that's the sample I want or that sample has the information and I need to make my you know, to, to move to the next step.
1: The other, the other aspect of TriMetis that I wanted to talk about was is called the ARCH system. So this stands for Accelerate Research Change Healthcare. And so tell me about this and what, what does this system do?
3: So the ARCH system basically takes the place of all those emails that go back and forth between the buyers and suppliers, let's say. It's, it's like researchers and suppliers that are out there. and makes it more like an online marketplace. Uh, it can be like an Amazon-like marketplace if you want to visualize it. But what we've done is that the suppliers can put up their samples with all their clinical data, with their uh, consents being tagged, whether they're waiver of consent or fully consented, and what they're consented for. Uh, and it makes it so that uh, researchers can go in themselves, and just sign in, and they can select the samples that they want. They can see the TCAP data on the samples, they can see the H and E images on the samples, and make the decision right then and there whether it works for their research. And they literally can add the cart and check out. And, uh, the suppliers then notified. They can then go ahead and transact and say, yes, we're going to go ahead and ship out the samples to you and then ship them straight out to the researcher. So we've gotten rid of emails that have to go back and forth with all these criteria. It all captures it and then sends it. There's a little chat function that they can use to communicate with each other if they need to. But the idea was to make it quick and simple to push research forward with the samples that meet the criteria. Because remember, they're seeing these H&E images up on the screen with the TCAP data even before they're getting it. So even the researcher that studies breast cancer, for example, they can even zoom in. They can see where the system has called the percent tumor, called the percent necrosis. They can see the cells. Uh, if they don't have access to the pathologist, they can make the decision right then and there uh, and go ahead and acquire it. They can also have a pathologist actually log in and, and select the samples for them. Uh, if They have a pathologist they can actually go ahead and add them to the cart, uh, the enterprise model, and go ahead and push it through. And this is the idea of that Lean Six Sigma aspect of making something much more simple. Uh, in a process area. You know, late on, I joke, like I said, we, we've been doing this for a long time. and we talked about innovating and, and we're constantly uh, looking for ways to improve things. So it's kind of funny because, you know, when we go to conferences, we just stay in the same room because otherwise we're just hanging out till 1130 at night with whiteboards. Like literally we'll go out and buy easel paper. We'll slap it up on the windows and put down post-it notes and workflow things till 1130 at night, every night. And it didn't make sense to spend the money on two hotel rooms. So we figured we'll just crash in one hotel room, considering we're working until 1130 at night, and then we're awake at 8 in the morning trying to figure this out again. So that's actually where, where, Arch, where Arch originally came from. Uh, we called it Arch because we had to give it a name, to be honest with you. And because we kept on, we hated calling it the marketplace over and over and over again. So we gave it a name, and that's uh, where it came from, was to make this process easier for everybody involved, to get the samples that everybody needs, uh, and get them quickly efficiently and the quality that's required that was really its impetus more than anything else
1: okay so let, let me see if, I, if i'm understanding this correctly so say you're a researcher and you need a particular type of tumor so you can go on arch on on the arch marketplace and you can search for exactly what you need and if you're a biobank and you've got these samples you can put them up there on the marketplace so that if somebody needs them they can they can find them it's, it's basically like a communication tool. Is that is that right?
0: Yeah. At its core, it's a communication tool. It's set up to be, you know, John probably doesn't want to say this, but, you know, that some of these, in some of these companies, the pharmaceutical and diagnostic companies, you know, they have a person purchasing pens that is also buying biospecimens in the same day because they're part of the
2: purchasing department. You know, the intent is to get that information out on the edge where people
0: who understand it need to access it and and, and and have that you know be right in front of them and and the problem is that the communication the telephone chains the things that happen in between typically now take a long time and again that's adding to that it's adding to the, the problem by making things slower you know and and so we've sped it up dramatically so there's uh, also it should be mentioned that you know, you don't the, the marketplace not only is for people that are doing commercially representing their blocks like a biobank that's commercially oriented, but it also there's the ability to check mark your uh, samples and just say these are for internal use. So the NCI or you know an academic institution that doesn't want to sell their samples but wants their own researchers to access them and put them in the system and it has all the digital images are in there the Pathology reports are in there. There's a lot of data that gets in there. So you really can make an educated decision on what samples will, will be the best for you. And then you can keep track of those long term. So, you know, if you ever wanted to get, get those back and interrogate, interrogate those images with new AIs, uh, you know, or with, um, uh, just to, to look at those groupings again, you can go back and get those and, as you know, probably with with uh, Adme talks and other studies, and a lot of that data was on paper and it just disappears forever, and you can never look at it again until you got boxes and boxes of people opening them up and then putting through OCR to get that data back. We didn't want that with the system. We want people to retrieve it, go back to it, and say, you know what? We know something more about prostate now. We have an AI that we can apply to that prostate, and not only can we do a Gleason score on it, we can tell you where the tumor nuclei. We can tell you exactly where what part you used, and we can we can then apply these new AIs that tell us something more about that tissue, and hopefully that add, you know that adds adds up to you know new types of pathology and information that can be used in care.
1: Yeah, I can see this being very useful in probably the near future, as a lot more of these AI systems are, you know are coming on the market, especially recently. So that, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, we are. We we have hardened the system, uh, and we continue, which means securing it, and we have made sure it's on a scalable platform. You can, you know, deliver content that that is uh, compliant, uh, twenty one CFR, you know, uh, GDPR, all those things that are data HIPAA, you know, all those compliances, and then, you know, you can go back and if someone else is developing an AI and they validate it or we validate it, you know, we can deploy those on ours and just say you know, that person can say, I want this AI on that block. And the hope is, it's not even a hope, we're actually working on some other things that allow, you know, the chemistry stains to be applied and, and uploaded. So you can look at those and you can reinterrogate them. Uh, you can change your cohorts, you can do all sorts of things with the tools that are emerging that we're aggregating, but also can be deployed on the art system. So it's much more than just, you know, a marketplace. And that's why ARCH, you know, accelerating research, changing healthcare is what it means, but it's, it was the visualization in my mind was it's something structural that's holding up all this, all this research and all this, uh, you know, these medical things. So um, that was where I wanted to go. And, you know, I think you'll find that this system is extremely scalable and this is kind of the first step. We wanted to start with quality, not, not attacking pathologists and what they do. I'm um, not trying to become the next person to do diagnosis, you know, in a certain space. We we've been down those roads personally about how hard that is to make new diagnostics and and things like that. But we wanted to focus on just let's get the basic information first and then we'll start to increase what we can do with those things.
1: So the last thing I wanted to talk about then, and I think you kind of touched on this a little bit, Leif, but future goals for Trimetis or kind of a future uh, future projects that the company is going to be working on. Is is there anything you can tell me about this?
0: So, so, you know, we have our research groups that we work with that we're, you know, putting in arch and allowing them to. Again, you don't have to. You don't have to buy a sample from us. You can actually put upload your image and run TCAP on those images and get that data. Um, so we are, you know, in some ways, putting ourselves out of business in the biospecimen business because anyone can use this. And what we did is we made it so that you know, if you are a researcher. A solo researcher in an academic situation and you have 10 samples, you can run this. You don't have to install software, buy all these things in order to run it. You just simply pay-per-click. We also have it on a subscription basis so that if you're doing a higher volume, you get better pricing, you can start to do um, more with those uh, materials that are presented in the, in the system. We also moved that one step further because we immediately realized like having this information is vital to... Pathology pathology groups, and they want to know what this is. They want to have the pathologist wants to check it, visually check it, but they they would love to see this happen. So, what we did to TCap is we added this heat map where we're able to count the nuclei, but also identify the density of that nuclei. Tumors do like to you know group in certain areas, and so you're going to get the most DNA out of that area. You're going to get the most tissue reactivity in that area, and so we provided the heat map app. Um, and now we have more apps that are coming out with tumor infiltrating lymphocytes and other features that are, you know, again, the human eye isn't great at spatial recognition and counting where our computers is, is excellent. Those two things maybe better than those things and other things. So we are starting to build the quality out in that area. We also have some modules that are coming out that are for pre-analytics, which is, you know, are there folds, are there, um, you know fixation issues with the tissues especially in the animal space where you have lots of slides come in at once and may not get looked at they actually have a smaller population as a as a vet path uh, and so you're waiting for that that resource to come available well you need to check those as they're being placed on slides because if something's wrong you may have to go back and recut that um, so even in the human space you know we check for those things especially those that aren't in westernized countries let's say uh, we want to double-check all the samples before they get in and go anywhere. Then we're using the cell counting, the tumor lymphocytes, and other um, IHC apps that are coming out for pl one and things that allow us to do those types of things on those samples. We also are developing a robot, uh, a proprietary robot, that takes those samples and the heat maps. The you know, computer identifies the heat map, the area of interest, and then can actually punch that area and put that into a dissociation tube. And what's currently done now is you know, uh, the pathologist will take the H&E, they will circle the area with the most tumor nuclei, the visual inspection, which is usually by color, and then they'll take unstained slides and they'll circle the area on top of that and they'll say, well, this is generally where this is. Then the histotex will take those in a sterile environment, they will scrape those tissues off the four micron slide and put them in little tubes. And then they put those tubes in the dissociation racks, and then they move on to the, the the sequencing. This robot basically takes that whole step out, where it's already identified where it should come from, and it's using just the right amount of tissue put it in the tube. So there's no handling, there's no sterilization, there's no toxic reagents that come in those steps, and there's not there's very few cross contamination that that happens with that. Um, so we have the robot that's coming out. We also have a product called LabFlow that is. For really next gen sequencing and genomic uh, people, where they are trying to uh, do more volume, so instead of doing 300 a day because they have several pathologists on staff, it can run 24 seven. Identify these samples, run in the heat maps, select those samples, and prepare them so that they can be ready for the next day. Lab flow can be set up to have mins and maxes where thresholds that select certain tumor tissues for use. And those that fail need to be rechecked for IHC. It's great because you can start to narrow your cohort down and say, these are actually samples that
2: are going to work for this cohort. And so when you talk immense chemistry, mm-hmm. you talk
0: about trying to get a marker that has, you know, a 1% prevalence it, it is very difficult to get, you know, from all these different sites around the world. Well, we can, we can, you know, have these images that are essentially effectively banked or retained and go through and interrogate those all again and say, well, let's narrow this down. Now we're going to have a, instead of choosing 10,000 samples that we're going to screen use and IEC, we're actually going to choose 1,000 samples or 100 samples that we know are going to be most likely to be selected. Um, so we have a lot of in- innovation. I would say we have 10 to 15 years of innovation that we're deploying across the art system. And uh, the first step is TCAP, but um, we again wanted to make it accessible to everyone. So, Again, if you're a researcher that has a credit card and you just want to buy some of these things as ad hoc services, um, or you're someone who wants to scale your laboratory instead of waiting for patient cases, cases to go through, we have a lot of applications that can move that through, um, in a 24
3: hour period. We look at it from a lead 6 standpoint, you know, where's the waste at and get rid of it? Uh, I always look at it if I had a magic wand to make something disappear, what would I make disappear? Uh, in in the realm of... I would use the coring one specifically because there's so much manual there. If you think about it, you know, for... for, Because I used to scrape slides. I told you that in the beginning. I used to sit there with the Mm -hmm. razor plate and scrape, and anybody who's done that knows that tissue likes to fly around the hood uh, because it's statically charged. It's a real pain. So anything that we can do to streamline that in the coring system, because of TCap, we know the XY coordinate of every single tumor cell on that, uh, that block, basically, makes it so much easier to just punch and move it to a tube. You eliminate... The uh, histotech having to, to grind out, you know, four slides. They all need to be scraped. You eliminate the pathologist time to go ahead and circle everything. You've gotten rid of that razor blade. So you've gotten rid of all that time and consumables. And we know from the NGS companies, like the major providers of NGS, they're, you know, they, the, the only way they can scale is by adding capacity on. It. They have to add people. You know, if, if you have a, a ratio we you got three histotechs to a pathologist and you're doing X amount and you want to go 10 times that, you need, 10 times the number of histotechs and 10 times the number of pathologists because there's no innovation in that area it's all manual and to me this is a major thing because it gets rid of that bottleneck those are three different bottlenecks there the histologist the pathologist and the scraping so if we can eliminate all that at once with a very simple tool uh that's running off of the data that's much more accurate than anything else provided that that's a that that one really speaks to me from a link six segment standpoint and we have a lot of other stuff that Lake isn't talking about. Uh, that's what that 10 to 15 years. We're going to take digital pathology and really change it around. You're going to see a lot of changes, uh, at least in the next in, in five years, you're going to see a lot more than than what you've seen just us talking about today.
1: Okay. I love it. I love it. And I, I look forward to that. Uh, so this this was a great conversation. I enjoyed uh, getting to know both of you. And uh, it, especially the the work that you're doing in Trimedis, which sounds like it's really going to uh, positively affect uh biobanking so so i love it so uh john wetzel leaf honda uh thank you very much thank you Thank you
3: so much for having us appreciate your time
1: great big thanks to leif honda and john wetzel that's some fascinating work that they're doing with Trimetis life sciences right now i've got a trailer for you from another episode that i think you'll enjoy and then i'll be back with some final comments on this episode
4: like i've told people ever since then you go through a career like a surfer maybe on a wave And you have good days and good days, and then one time you get up on top of a wave and you say, oh my God, this is the biggest wave. If I play my, if I do everything right, I could stay on the top of this wave, I mean wave, I don't know how long, but if I don't know that I'm on top of that wave at the time and then I crash, I'll say, oh, I was once on a great wave. If I'd only known, I said to myself, this is the time and the date where you know this is that wave. And I said, I will drop everything. To to, to get this done and to be available and to get the time away. And that's what happened. We went around a listening tour for a a year uh, as more financing was being assembled, talking to mostly medical oncologists and some key opinion leader pathologists who I respected.
1: To hear more from Dr. Jeffrey Ross as we talk about companion diagnostics and foundation medicine, check out episode 108. All right, so as usual, I really enjoy talking about the technology aspect of pathology. I always find these conversations really interesting and I think there's going to be a lot more of this type of thing in the not too distant future. And it's also interesting how John and Leif brought their different backgrounds to what Trimetis is doing to help create a platform that will help to streamline biobanking and make it more efficient. And as they mentioned, they have 10 to 15 years of innovation in the pipeline, so I look forward to seeing what comes of that, especially as artificial intelligence continues to improve. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology Podcast.